Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. It's been good to be together this morning, and there is something powerful and different when God's people gather together to exalt the name of Jesus and the work of our great God over all. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. If you're grabbing the Bible in the seat in front of you, that's on page 1023. We're in the middle of a series right now going through the book of 1 John called That You May Know. This book, this letter, was written to provide assurance of salvation. That is, confidence if you belong to Christ knowing that you do, in fact, belong to him. We've said that this idea of assurance, this confidence in our standing as God's children is essential to the Christian life. Now, as we began this series several weeks ago, we noted that on the path of assurance, there are two different sides that people typically fall off. Uh, On the one side, there are those who are genuinely in Christ Jesus and yet they struggle all their lives to really believe that they have received salvation, that they have eternal life, and that they have every hope and expectation of eternity spent with God. You spend your life biting your nails, always wondering, was that prayer I prayed enough, did I really mean it, or was I really sorry enough in that moment? On the other side of the path are those who fall off to the side and saying, well, wait a minute, I prayed some kind of prayer, I performed some kind of religious act in the past, and so because I did that, I I know I have a relationship with God, when in fact, they do not. So what we did is we established the glorious truth that we can have relationship with God Almighty because of all that he's done for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We turned our attention last week then to begin to diagnose our spiritual condition, examining ourselves through a series of tests that John has provided us in this letter to help us. And if you lean towards either side of the path, these two tests are centering. They help you to understand, to discern what might really be going on within your soul. So by God's grace, the power of the Spirit working through his word, My prayer has been for these final three weeks, both last week, today, and next week, that God would comfort his children, that if you do belong to the Lord, that each time as we open up God's word together in this series, you will be comforted in knowing that you will have assurance and be reminded and know with certainty that you belong to God. My prayer has also been that if you do not belong to God, that the Holy Spirit would convict you this morning, that he would have convicted you last week and he'll convict you again next week and draw you to himself by his loving kindness and the power of his spirit through his word. What we said in 1 John is that, excuse me, he gives us three tests to diagnose our spiritual condition, three ways that enable us 
to check our spiritual pulse. As we see these three tests described by John, we need to keep two truths on the forefront of our minds, at the front of our thinking. And so to do that, uh, they're listed again at the top of your notes. And it's these two truths. The claim to eternal life is founded on the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. The claim to eternal life is then substantiated by external evidence. So eternal life is established by grace through faith in Jesus only. But eternal life becomes evident in the way that you and I live our lives. We ended our time together last week looking at 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. And by way of recap and reminder, let's begin there this morning. 1 John 3, verse 10. It says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. God's word separates people into two different families. You are either a child of the devil or you are a child of God. You are either a child of God and thus strive to live life without sins and thus keeping God's commandments or you are a child of the devil and you are indifferent to sin. And while we said last week that genuine believers will never be fully rid of their sin in this life, they will, by the power of the Spirit of God, wage war against their sin and grow in becoming more and more like Jesus. Our first test in determining or discerning whether or not we have eternal life is do I practice righteousness? Have I found God's commandments to be precious and glorious, like they are a great treasure which I guard with my life? Do I long to keep God's commandments, and do I, by God's grace, grow in keeping his commandments? Do I trust that God truly is a good father who loves me, and all of the commandments which he has issued, he has issued for my good and for your good, and so I keep them and I guard them, demonstrating my faith and my trust in him. Well, verse 10 concludes by saying, and nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, the one who does not love his brother is not of God. This is our second test to determine whether or not we have passed out of death and into eternal life. We ask ourselves the question, do I love Christians? Do I love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Please look at verses 11 through 18 with me this morning as we discern this question. Verse 11. For this is the message that we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, 
how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This passage begins, John says, this is the very message which we have heard from the beginning. That is, from the beginning of our Christian experience, when we first heard the gospel and embraced Jesus Christ by faith, this was part of the gospel message, that Jesus Christ laid down his life and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters, that the gospel is a message of overwhelming love and it produces that same love in all of those who have truly embraced it. That the message of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is so inextricably tied to loving one another that this is the message we've heard from the beginning. That this is absolutely foundational to the Christian life. Uh, See this list of passages here in the New Testament and see if you can discern how important this reality is to the Lord. Beginning back in John 13, this is Jesus speaking. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. A bit later in chapter 15, he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus again says, these things I command you, why? So that you would love one another. Then Paul picks it up in Romans chapter 12. He says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. A chapter later, he says, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 1 Corinthians 16, let all that you do be done in love. Again, in Galatians, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Ephesians 5, 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 1 Thessalonians 4, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. Let brotherly love continue. James, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Peter gets in on the action having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. See it here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And then here in 1 John, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. 421, and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And then in 2 John, verse five, and now I ask you, dear lady, to the church, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one that we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. I mean, do you kind of get the sense that loving one another is a bit important to the Lord? 
Like, he kind of harps on this over and over and over again so that God's people would constantly and continually be reminded that part of what it means to be a child of God is to love one another. That loving one another is foundational to the Christian life, that it stands at the very heart of the gospel. And so here in our passage, 1 John chapter 3, verse 11, this is the message that we have had from the beginning that we should love one another. This verse here acts as a heading for the remainder of our passage. And so what John does from this point is he begins to give us two examples, two ways in showing us, hey, here's what first love does not look like, and then here is the perfect example of what it looks like to love one another. So verse 12, here's what it doesn't look like to love one another. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. Now this verse is brilliant. Uh, It's almost as if it were inspired by the Spirit of God because what John does here is he grabs what he was talking about in verse 10 that we should love the brothers and then he goes into telling us a story, reminding us, pointing us back to a story about two brothers and shows us how things worked out between the two of them. He makes this connection by going back to the story of Cain and Abel that there are two different families. There are children of God and there are children of the devil. He says Cain, who was of the evil one, that is a child of the devil, he murdered his brother. Uh, Please flip back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis is the first book in your Bible. Chapter 4 is the fourth chapter. It comes after the third and before the fifth. Uh, Genesis chapter 4, we're going to flip back to John 3 here real soon, 1 John 3. Here in Genesis chapter 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Now remember the context here before we read these eight verses together. Uh, This is after Genesis 1 and 2, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and all that he created, he looked at it, and it was very, very good that everything in all of creation was functioning as it should function in complete submission and obedience to their king and God and creator. Adam and Eve were enjoying perfect fellowship with one another. They were enjoying perfect fellowship with the Lord. Genesis chapter three, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and they sin against the Lord because they believe that God must be holding out on them. And if they're to truly enjoy life, then they must go beyond the commandments of God. Seems like John talked about that. They reject God's claim of kingship over their lives. They cast him aside. They seat themselves on the thrones of their lives and they say, God, out with you. I hate you. I hate your ways. Mine are better and I love me more. And so because of their sin, they're cursed, but redemption is promised. They're told that one is coming who will ultimately deal with sin and death. And then after this, they're banished from the presence of the Lord. They're no longer able to enjoy relationship with the Lord in the way that they did before sin had entered. And then the very first story is what we're told here in Genesis chapter 4 in these first eight verses. Read with me, please. It says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of of the Lord, which by the way, I think that verse just screams repentance. They're still in relationship with the Lord. They're recognizing now again their dependence on the Lord. Uh, Verse two, and again, 
she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry. And his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and he killed him. Cain, full of jealousy, Cain, full of envy, Cain, full of resentment, rises up against his brother and he murders him. Now jump back to 1 John chapter 3. This is the story that John is pointing us to. He wants us to have this in our minds as he continues to develop this passage. This Cain who rose up in anger and envy and resentment and hatred towards his brother This is what he wants us to have in our minds as we continue through this passage. What happens here in verse 12 is John actually interprets Genesis chapter four for us. He tells us what was going on, scripture interpreting scripture. Why did Cain murder Abel? What was his motive? Look at verse 12. We should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Cain's deeds, evil. Abel's deeds, righteous. And Abel's righteousness was intolerable to Cain. So much so that seeing his righteousness made Cain hate his brother. And so he rose up and he murdered him. You see, the Lord accepted Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain's. And Cain saw this and became angry, and increasingly so, so much so that his anger led him to hate, and his hate resulted in murder. And all of this because Abel, his brother, practiced righteousness. And seeing someone else practicing righteousness highlighted his unrighteousness. And so what does Cain do when he begins to see his unrighteousness revealed and disclosed? He goes into self-preservation mode. Self-preservation is what characterizes hatred of others. Self-preservation is what demonstrates a life of hate towards others. It becomes all about me. I do whatever it takes in life to look after old number one. And if anyone threatens my safety, my security, my reputation, my getting what I want, when I want, how I want it, for the very reason that I want it, then I do whatever it takes to preserve these realities in my life. I do whatever it takes to keep my security, to keep my comfort, to keep my satisfaction, to keep my pleasure, whatever that means for anyone else. I live life as though everyone exists to serve me and to make much of me. I do not look at people as people anymore. Instead, They become objects in my service in the kingdom in which I am building. What can I get from them? How can they serve me? 
How can they exalt me and make me look great? And the very moment that I perceive anything in my precious kingdom is threatened, I become angry and it leads me to hate. And Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter five that when we have this kind of hatred, it's as if we're, judge, we're liable to the same judgment as murder. When I hate others, life is about self-preservation. And you might be sitting there thinking right now, well, I don't really feel like this strong feeling or sentiment of hate. Uh, well, sometimes that can be a bit deceiving. Is life more about self-preservation? When I look around and I see others that are not living like that, what does it do to me when my life is all about self-preservation? When I see other people who are not living like life is about self-preservation, it reveals how truly evil and how wicked my thinking is. And it demonstrates with clarity how wicked my actions are. The light of their lives, the light of their righteousness reveals the darkness in my soul. And if I cannot hide my selfishness, if I cannot hide my self-centeredness, then I must eliminate the threat. So verse 13 goes on to say, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Of course it does. If you're in relationship with God because you have embraced the person and finished work of Jesus Christ by faith, and if the Holy Spirit of God now lives in you, causing you to keep the commandments of God and to walk in righteousness, then of course the world is gonna hate you. Of course. Every act of your righteousness uncovers their unrighteousness. Every bit of good that radiates from your life reveals their wickedness. As you walk as Jesus walked, your life is a constant convictor to those around you. So John says, don't be surprised if the world hates you. They're children of the devil, just like Cain. And just as Cain saw his brother's righteous deeds, so the world also should see yours. And if you are in fact keeping the commandments of God, they will see you keeping the commandments of God. They will see you practicing righteousness and they will hate you for it. So don't hate like Cain. Don't make life all about self-preservation. Don't make life all about you and seek to eliminate every single threat to your security or to your safety or to your satisfaction. What John is saying to us this morning is this kind of living is common and it's expected amongst children of the devil, amongst people of this world, but it is not so with the people of God. He continues in verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. This here is the second test that John gives to us to check our spiritual pulse. We know that we have passed out of death and into life when we love the brothers. John says, look, no love, no life. It's that simple. Do I practice righteousness? Do I love Christians? And just as we have already said this morning, loving one another is foundational to the Christian life that it's at the very heart of the gospel, that I cannot be a child of God and hate God's children. If I am a child of God, then I will love 
my spiritual family. I will love all of those who belong to God. So how do I know then? How do I determine whether or not I really love Christians and that I'm walking in love towards my brothers and sisters? Verses 16 through 18. Verse 16 first, he says, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Here's the contrast that John sets up for us this morning. He says, don't hate like Cain and be all about self-preservation. Instead, love like Jesus. He sets up for us the prototypical child of the devil and the prototypical son of God. What does it look like to love Christians? Look at Jesus' example. This is John's repeated message over and over and over again throughout the book. If you want to see love, look at the cross. If you want to show love, look at the cross. If you want to know love, look at the cross. If you want to live love, look at the cross. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Whereas hatred has at its center self-preservation, at the very center of love is self-sacrifice. The core of love is self-sacrifice. It is more action than it is feeling. And culturally, we have so messed up what love really is. However, there is one segment of the population that still has a very good grasp on this idea. It's children ages four to eight years old. Uh, they did a survey, a group of professionals posed the question, what does love mean? Here's how some four to eight-year-olds responded. Six-year-old Chrissy says, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. Seven-year-old Danny says this, Love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure that the taste is okay. <laughs> Four-year-old May Ann says, love is when your puppy licks your face even after you've left him alone all day. Aw. And eight-year-old Rebecca, she says this, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Real, biblical love is about doing what is best for another, even at self-expense. The kind of love that scripture calls us to, the kind of love that Jesus demonstrates is doing what is best for another even at self-expense. Biblical love is characterized by self-sacrifice. Warren Wearsby said, self-preservation is the first law of physical life. Self-sacrifice is the first law of spiritual life. That the greatest act of love, the greatest example of love is when the sinless son of God laid down his life for sinners to bring us back into relationship with God. And he, in that moment, did what was best for us at the greatest self-expense. And now, 
if we too are in Christ and God's seed abides in us, that is the Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in our hearts, then we too ought to be willing to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. But John knows this, that the greatest need of the world is not for sensational acts of martyrdom, but for simple acts of self-sacrifice. Look at verse 17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? You see, saying I would die for you, I would lay down my life for you, sounds noble, it sounds spiritual, but could you give me something to eat? Could you let me sleep on your couch until I get back on my feet again? Could you help me with one of my bills this week? Would you be able to watch my kids for a couple hours while I get some things done that I haven't been able to do and really need to get at? Would you be willing to care for me when I get sick? Or would you just make the time to show up and just simply be with me when I'm going through a really hard time? You see, John changes the conversation on a dime. It's talking about this grand and noble act of laying down our lives. Yes, we ought to be willing to do that, but it doesn't just mean dying for one another. He means dying to ourselves daily, moment by moment, so that we can live to love one another. Rather than self-preservation, keeping everything that I have all for myself, always holding on to it tightly, what John is saying is, no, 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 if, if the Holy Spirit of God lives in us and we've been radically transformed by the love of Christ and I don't live like this anymore, I open my hands towards my brothers and sisters. I share joyfully and I share generously. We have a three-year-old and a five-year-old and they love their stuff a whole lot. And sharing can be really, really difficult for them. And so what we tell them, hey, what does sharing mean? And they say back to us, it means that I love you more than I love my stuff. When we share, when we open up our hands, when we give to one another generously of our times, of our resources, of our possessions, of anything that we have, what we're saying is I love you more than I love my stuff. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ more than your stuff? You see, it's not just hard for three-year-olds. It's not just hard for five-year-olds. It's hard for us. And this isn't just talking about material goods. What about some of the other goods that we possess? Perhaps in our culture, the most precious good that we have is our time. And are you, am I, willing to sacrifice my time for my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I setting aside time in order to love my brothers and sisters? What John is asking us here in this passage this morning, is he's saying, when I see my brother or sister in need, be it materially, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and I'm unwilling to sacrifice my stuff for them, my time for them, my emotions for them, then how could God's love possibly abide in me? If the Holy Spirit of God resides in me and he loves all of God's children, then how could he possibly live in me and not cause and produce that same kind of love, that same kind of demonstration of self-sacrifice 
towards my brothers and sisters. John is saying that if you are not self-sacrificing towards other Christians, but instead you exalt self-preservation over loving them, then you may be a child of the devil, not a child of God. Because God's children love God's children. The gospel produces this love. The Holy Spirit produces this love. Now, do we get this kind of love right every time? Of course not. This is the same reality that we saw last week. We'll never be rid of all the darkness in our hearts on this side of eternity. But the question is, am I growing in self-sacrifice? Is my life less and less characterized by self-preservation and more and more characterized by self-sacrifice? Am I growing in loving God's children? Am I increasingly laying down my life to love my brothers and sisters? Am I giving more and more of my stuff and more and more of my time in order to love? And when I fail to live selflessly, do I repent? Do I confess my sin to the Lord? Do I go and talk to my brother or sister in Christ and ask for their forgiveness for whom I hurt in not giving of myself in that moment? And then do I rest in Jesus' perfect righteousness that he did what was self-sacrificing every time? John concludes with verse 18. And again, he addresses us as little children. He says, little children, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John says what we say now here today, talk is cheap, right? This is exactly what James says in James chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body? What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. He's saying, let's not listen to one another's woes and say, hey, thank you for sharing that with me, brother. I'll pray for you. Why not take the time right then and there to stop and to put your arm around your brother or sister in Christ and to pray with them and to encourage them and to give of your time and to sacrifice of your emotion Let's not hear a brother or sister talk about what they need and say, hey, you know what? I'm gonna be praying that the Lord provides that for you. Well, wait a minute. Do I have what they need right there in that moment? And am I the very answer to the prayer that I'll go and maybe not pray 10 minutes from then? Perhaps I can respond to that right now and be God's answer to that prayer in providing for my brother or sister in Christ. And I just wanna stop right here and take a minute and say praise God for his kindness within our church family because almost every single time that I'm made aware of a certain need that comes up within our church family, by the time I figure out what's going on, it's already been provided for and cared for by somebody else. The small group leader already knows about it. There's something that's already organized and God's people are already mobilized and in action, loving, demonstrating self-sacrifice. Praise God for that. What John is saying is, hey, let's not just be about talk, but let's be about action in loving one another. Biblically, love is an action word. And John says, hey, let's love in deed and in truth. He adds this word in truth for a very good reason. 
He says this effectively. Hey, look, uh, words can be empty, but actions can be hypocritical. Sometimes people can do acts of self-sacrifice, but the motivation may not be love. They may be self-sacrificing for the sake of self-preservation. This is not actually love. This is manipulation. It is using someone else's situation in order to make much of myself. And what this passage, what John, what God's word is calling us to do is to reflect and to consider whether our lives are characterized by love. Real, genuine, biblical love, a self-sacrificing kind of love towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. It is the kind of love that expresses itself in tangible actions and it is motivated by a heart of considering the other person and considering their needs as more important than my own. It is the kind of love that was modeled by Jesus and becomes the pattern for all of God's children. It is to love in deed and in truth. This morning as we're considering this, this whole idea of bringing together our loving actions, our self-sacrifice, our deeds unto one another that are motivated by genuine love and care and concern for one another, uh, Paul actually brings these two ideas together really, really well in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm gonna have it here on the screens. You can look at it later in your Bibles, but it'll be helpful for all of us to look at it here together. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 it says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, he's bringing up this idea that I can be doing these extraordinary acts of self-sacrifice, but without love, you can be doing these deeds, but not in truth. The motive can be wrong. The end is self. Then he continues. Love is patient, and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So Christian, brother or sister in Christ, how are you doing in your love towards one another? How are you doing in your love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, which, by the way, may include your spouse and your children? Think back on this last week. Maybe think about this morning. Consider, too, the week ahead. How are we doing in loving one another? I think one way for us to reflect on this is to remove the word love in these last several verses and instead replace it with your name. 
So what we're gonna do here for just a moment is I'm gonna be quiet and give you some time to just reflect and to consider how you are doing in loving one another and how you are doing in loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. So be quiet, reflect, consider. As you do that, can I call you even now in this moment to repent for where you might be failing? To after this moment, maybe seek forgiveness from your brother or sister whom you've failed to love? Could I call you also in this moment to rejoice in the grace that God has given you? in the areas as you reflect on this and see the Holy Spirit of God growing you? Could I call you this morning to hope in the power of the Holy Spirit to continue to grow you in each of these areas, to continue to produce this kind of love toward your brothers and sisters? And can I call you this morning to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ who loved perfectly? We know that we passed out of death and into life if we love our brothers and sisters in Christ like that. When self-sacrifice characterizes our relationships with other Christians. Loving Christians is a, not a condition of knowing God, but it is a clear sign and indication that we do know God. When we love, we can know that we are the children 